Welcome to the False Neutral. It is episode 18. It's legal to vote. <laughs> <laughs> for somebody. For, yeah, for some of you out there. Uh, I am Eric, one of the triumphant, uh, triumphant, triumphant, triumvirate, I believe, is the, I'm trying to remember my Roman history. Pete will be joining us shortly. He is on his way uh, home from the office, but um, Garrett is with us right now. That's right. I'm here. Uh, we haven't talked uh, amongst each other for quite a while. Um, not that you guys would know because we've been airing episodes regularly, but uh, Pete's been on vacation. I went on a little mini vacation, but it's been a couple weeks since we talked, so I suppose we have a lot of catching up to do. Eric, you got your XS400 running, and I don't know for how long it hasn't been running, but I think this is pretty exciting for you, right? Yeah, so it's, I guess it was about two year and a half, about a year and a half ago, I had um, had it up and running and, and rode it a little bit. But I was having some issues with, I had thought I got all the crap out of the gas tank from when it had sat with gas in it for so many years. And, and I, I just couldn't get it out. So I'm like, all right, I'm just going to coat the tank. And well, I got busy with a hundred other things in life. And it was like, yeah, I got to get that tank coated. Yeah. Well, nothing, nothing motivates you like moving. So because we're... <laughs> right. Because we're moving, and in fact, um, my office is essentially in boxes, and as of tomorrow, at end of business tomorrow, will be completely in boxes. So uh, if it sounds a little echoey in here, or a little hollow, no, I'm not calling from a tin can. No. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, I, uh, I got the tank coated, I guess it was last week or the week, last, no, about two, a week and a half, two weeks ago. Um, it was running okay, but it wouldn't take any throttle. Um, at all. I mean, you could, you had to really, really, really be careful to sneak up on it to get it to above like three grand. And then once it was over three grand, it seemed to rev okay and seemed all right. So, um, I pulled the carbs off, took the pilot jets out, yeah. used about, uh, two thirds of a can of carb cleaner and just sprayed everything out really good and got everything moving again. And it still needs some tuning because it'll start off choke but it won't start on choke it, i mean it needs to get set for two years right i mean the carbs are in good yeah. shape everything's good shape and i probably need to put more gas and it. it's got fresh gas just not a lot of it because when i replaced the fuel line i didn't have any um fittings to tighten it so it kind of leaked out a little bit yeah so it, it can be difficult to get all of the junk out of the pilot circuit even when you take out the jet and you clean out the jet and you clean the carbs as best you can sometimes it can be really difficult to get all of the uh, tarnish or debris or, or whatever else might be in the entire circuit. And so sometimes it's easy to, easier to let them sit in some cleaner and use a really um, focused air nozzle mm-hmm. and just really blow all the passages out on the carburetor as best you can. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like you still have a little bit of plugged up pilot circuit if it won't start off choke, but it will on choke or... Yeah, I mean, um, like like I said, I just pulled the carbs off, pulled the pilot yeah. jets out, sprayed them out, sprayed down through there and all around, yeah. and all around. But yeah, and my uh, my air compressor's unplugged and half put away, and everything's yeah. kind of in boxes. So once I'm in the new place, I'll get I'll get to it and run. I mean, it doesn't have current plates or insurance on it, so it's not like I can go ride it anyway. Right? So. Yeah. Um, did you use the red coat for your tank sealing? I did, um, and it actually worked 
really well. I, I put probably two thirds of the can into it. Yeah. And then, you know, like it said, like the instruction said, roll it around for, I don't know, five minutes or 10 minutes, or whatever it was. And then uh, to pour whatever is left out. And it took a little bit to get all of it out. And then thankfully it was, well, I guess, thankfully it, it sat in the garage and it was like 85 degrees over, over a day and a half. So, yeah. you know, it had plenty of time to cure in, 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 a, in a warm environment. And I put a clear hose on it initially when I put gas in it and, um, yeah, nothing. I mean, it was nice, clear gas coming through it. So it looks like it, it did the job. Yeah, good. I was asking because the T350 that I have, uh, it's got a fiberglass tank on it. And as you'll probably recall, because I've talked about it a little bit, I got this motorcycle from a museum and it, and it had sat for a long time. The tank, it appears as though it was coated with something long, long, long ago. And, uh, but you can see the gel coat inside the tank. And so I wanted to coat it with something. And I was looking at Redco and I was looking at some of the others and I was leaning towards Redco, even though they say it's not supposed to be used on fiberglass tanks. I read a lot of people who have used it successfully on fiberglass tanks. And so I was, I'm still trying to debate on what exactly I'm going to do with the tank either use red coat or some other type of coating or just it's got two petcock outputs and and i only use one for the carburetors and i was thinking about just putting another petcock in it and just draining the fuel because i only ride it around town fuel only sits in it for a couple of hours and i only use non-ethanol fuel anyways and so i was imagining just putting another petcock in it and draining it not even dealing with the Mm -hmm. uh the ceiling but i'm just not sure what i'm gonna do well you know what this reminds me, it doesn't even matter so much anyways. Uh, today is the last day that I'll have this motorcycle. <laughs> In fact, immediately when we're done recording this, I'm delivering it to its new owner, who's a friend of mine. And so one way or another, the ceiling of the tank probably will be an issue that I'll have to deal with. But it's going to its new owner today in just about an hour. So I'm, I'm trying to think the other stuff that I know, I thought people have used at least in fiberglass tanks. Um, am I thinking, remember this wrong, but pour 15? Yeah, uh, I, I've heard of pour 15 for a tank ceiling system. It could just be a regular internet thing, yeah. but people don't like it as much as others. I don't know if that means it works better or worse. I mean, it's really tough to say when you get opinions from the Internet whether or not they're credible. So I don't know. I I think tank sealants are a bit like oil. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's It's like, no, that synthetic oil is no good. This synthetic oil is the best. Right, exactly. But I did make a few changes to this T350, and and you'll see on the pictures, and listeners can uh, jump on and see them, but... I took off the clip-ons and put a set of drag bars on, um, which you'll be able to see in that picture. The, the clip-ons were super narrow, and the motorcycle, um, the riding position was uh, not good for the street. And mm-hmm. the handlebars were super narrow, and so I put these drag bars on, and it, it makes the motorcycle much more comfortable to ride. The person that this is going to is an older gentleman, and I think that he just wants to cruise it around town. And so these handlebars are much more suited for his riding. I don't think it looks quite as cool, but I'll tell you, the riding position sure is a lot better, a lot more comfortable. At any rate, just made a few changes there. Looks good. Uh, So, yeah, otherwise, I, if you can believe this, I've only just today and yesterday adjusted points. Um, You can say for the first time, I've never had a motorcycle that 
I didn't either upgrade to an electronic ignition system or it was just new enough where it had an electronic ignition system. So my uh, Yamaha TX750, it has the original style points in it. And I tried, well, not tried, I yesterday and today just uh, tinkered with it and got the points adjusted and the timing set on it. But uh, it's the first time that I've ever adjusted points before. Have you ever had to do that? Yes, but the last time I did it was probably 30 years ago. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> and it was in a car that I owned at the time. Yeah. So, uh, your your XS four hundred does it have points or is it electronic? It's, it's kind of right in that cusp. Yeah, ninety nine percent sure it's electronic. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't, well, I don't recall it having points. No. Points aren't such a bad thing. No, I mean, they are either. more maintenance than an electronic ignition, but they're so simple, no, so easy to set. It's it's caveman technology, but right. So I don't mind it. Yeah, I don't get, think get it to a point, get your feeling gauge out. Okay, we're yeah. good. And you know, every two thousand miles is what the recommended interval is for adjusting them. And if I'm lucky, I'll put two thousand miles on this motorcycle in the next ten years. I just don't think that I'll ride it that much. Yeah, every, every spring is part of your maintenance to get it running. And in in, yeah, know, exactly. Change the oil, check, change the you know, check the points. Yeah, get a little sandpaper out in well, case there's a little rust on it. Exactly. Uh, unfortunately, Pete's not here right now because I wanted to rub it in that the FC10 was officially announced, which uh, we knew was coming. Yeah. And I know that Pete loves the styling so much, I <laughs> wanted to get his take on it. Oh, you were talking about the FC10 and making fun yeah. of me. Yeah, that's right. Um, I should have just stayed offline. <laughs> <laughs> I know that this is Pete's favorite styled motorcycle he's ever seen. And so I was uh, going to rub that into you, Pete. But since you're having a little bit of a bad day, I'll hold off. <laughs> it's okay. No, I'm excited. I, I, it's not going to bother me to see them on the street. It's, it's just that I would, I, would, I would never buy one. Uh, there's yeah. a big difference between, boy, that's so ugly that I can't stand to look at it, and it's ugly enough that I wouldn't <clears throat> spend money for it. I'm excited. I'm trying to figure out a way to uh, talk my wife into uh, believing that it's a necessity for me to have one. I would really love to see one in my garage. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but I'm I'm enjoying seeing that they're going to be on sale. I think that we'll probably see them in uh, mm-hmm. showrooms. Uh, I, I think that I heard uh, in July okay, uh, in the U.S., but I'm not 100% certain, so don't quote me on that, but we'll probably see them here pretty soon. So, so Garrett, I think the key to getting one in your garage is to figure out what project your wife wants that's of a similar price or in or or relative importance to her, and then you and then you do the trade off, right? Yeah, that's that's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> so, for one, uh, I don't officially have a job because I quit it to go back to school, and so she supports us, and so it would be hard for me to say. Honey, I'm going to go spend $12,000 of your money. But I'll tell you what, in trade, you can spend $12,000 of your money, too. So I, the logic just doesn't play out. I'll wait until I finish school, and then maybe there will be a FZ 
10 something else by then who knows or they may be really sweet on the used market right then you know at the bottom maybe. of the bottom of the uh, depreciation curve yeah maybe they'll take a little bit of the edge off the transformer styling and then they'll be a little bit more bearable to look at but uh pete you went to alaska i spent nine days in juneau yes yeah I was surprised to see a Ducati, of all motorcycles, a Ducati in Juneau, Alaska. I I was surprised how many motorcycles I saw. That was the only Ducati. Yeah. And I made the comment of, wow, the closest Ducati dealer that I know of is in Anchorage or Seattle. And I thought, wow, you're at least 600 miles as the crow flies without any land transportation to a dealer. And my friend Tim local guy up there said oh you'd be surprised there's some really talented mechanics in this town i'm like yeah but they don't have factory tools they don't have a whole stock of parts trying to get stuff there is uh they talk about the costco barge twice a week they have the costco barge comes up the river to resupply the costco store which is the smallest costco in the system so (laughs) yeah and i was gonna say if one of those breaks down yeah, sure, they have talented mechanics up there, but you still have to get it to one, and you still have to get parts. And I, I could just see like a motorcycle being disabled for three months while you're waiting on parts or something or the right mechanic to do it. Uh, and, Amazon, Amazon two-day prime, man. Okay, maybe in Alaska it's three-day uh, prime. On Ducati parts? I don't know about no, that. No, they actually, it's interesting, they do have two-day prime, but a lot of the stuff from third-party vendors, they simply say, we don't ship to Alaska or Hawaii. Yeah. So either you get it as part of your prime real quick for free or you just can't get it at all yeah and that reminds me about something that you brought up eric volkswagen was going to be well probably going to be getting rid of ducati and among other brands because of their gigantic emission scandal i would love to see volkswagen just crumble into the earth personally i hate what they have done with this emission scandal and also, I just have this huge disdain for Volkswagens and the reliability. I've had one, so I can say this from experience. Uh, it's but, time to unpimp your corporation. Yeah. <laughs> so, Audi. I forgot who it was at Audi made a statement earlier this week saying, "No, no, no, we're not. You know, we're not going to get rid of Ducati. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you in that. There, there is some trepidation of being under the VW corporate umbrella." On the other hand, Ducati floating around on its own without that level of backing financially yeah. in this day and age. I mean, 20 years ago when it was uh, what the Texas Pacific Group that bought it out as a as a um, from from bankruptcy essentially and built it up. Okay, that yeah, but that was 20 years ago. It was a different world financially, and um, I don't know that you could get away with that today. And I, and I have to say, I think that Audi saying, no, we're not going to get rid of Ducati is kind of like the captain of the Titanic saying, no, we're not going to put anybody right. in lifeboats. You know, it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is going to cost a fortune for Volkswagen. I mean, this emission scandal uh, 10, to, it, I, 10 to $12 billion at current. It, it's surprising how little it got a lot of attention when it first surfaced, but it's really. I don't know if this is Volkswagen's PR team just doing a pretty good job about keeping it under the the carpet, but it just doesn't seem like it's been a big a deal in news well, as it should no, be. I, but I think it's because everybody's in litigation and nobody wants to talk about a pending yeah. lawsuit. Yeah. So yeah. none of that, the parties want to talk about it. That's I, that's part of it, and and I can say that uh, our company, because we are my day job, I um, we we do social media content and a bunch of other stuff for car dealers. And we have 
three Volkswagen dealerships, all two under one group and one off or another one actually in Pete's backyard in Olathe. Um, but um, yeah, we get we we deal with it, at least from a consumer level. There's a lot of I mean, some people don't care. And there's a lot yeah. there's even some people who are like, you you know, they're like, uh, you know, you can take my diesel out of my cold, dead hands because they love right. it so much. And then you've got the other people like, oh, my God, you personally lied to me because you said blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, we didn't personally lie to you. But, you know, the dealer, you know, they're accusing the dealership of it. I'm like, dude, this yeah. is the information we, we, we had. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's some bad sentiment, not maybe not as bad as is as, as it was six months ago when it when it broke. But. It's it's still out there and it's definitely affecting sales. So well, it'll be interesting to see what happens to Ducati because it doesn't seem like this would uh, be good at all for Ducati to lose the mothership. Um, no. I imagine that a lot of their source of their funding and their capital and their operation costs comes from Volkswagen, and and I think that Ducati is a strong brand. I think it can uh, probably weather the storm, but it seems like they would have to be purchased by another company at least in the short term to operate probably uh, probably somewhere in china too yeah and i don't know we'll see what that happens with especially with the reliability i don't know if they have to cut costs on manufacturing we'll see Ducati what on its own makes money um both uh both from a bike production standpoint and its racing pace for itself because philip morris scratches about a 50 million dollar check every year for it no even kidding. though they can't put marlboro or philip morris on the bike um, right so that's it's 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 a making money or I mean, it's not a it's not a money losing situation. So from that standpoint, um, it's paying for itself. So it's not like it's critical that Volkswagen get rid of it unless they're just looking to raise cash. Yeah. So at any rate, uh, moving on the Yamaha SCR 950. What do you guys think? I really like it. I really like it. I, I'll tell you, I. I was at the dealership and I sat on the, what is it, the R spec and the C spec, the the one with the more forward controls and the one that's a little bit more cafe style with rear sets of the, of the Bolt. Oh, okay, yeah. And and I really thought I want something in between these two. I'd like to have the the more rearward pegs, but I'd like a little higher seat and not the clip ons. I'd like some a little bit higher bars. And like a week later, they introduced it. I'm like, yeah. Wow, that's really impressive. Yeah. I haven't really made my mind up on it yet, to be honest. Um, I I like the idea of the manufacturers going to, like, the throwback designs, the heritage designs like this with Yamaha scramblers and, and all that. But I just haven't quite decided if I really like this one. It seems... And I haven't actually looked at it in person, so I don't know. But it seems like it's made to a price point. Um, it looks really cheap in pictures, especially the front suspension, uh, the brakes, uh, some of the components on it. And I get it. They're, they need to, uh, to reduce some costs to be able to sell it for the price that they need to. But uh, I think that it would have benefited maybe from a little bit better components and a little bit higher price tag. The, I think it's the X, is it the XCR 900 um, motorcycle? Mm-hmm. That one... It looks like it's got a little bit better suspension on it. I think it has inverted forks, and it just doesn't look so cheap. And I like the the look, the design of the SCR 950, but if it had a little bit of the more advanced components on it, I think I would like it a little bit more. So I'm going to withhold judgment until I see it in person. Uh, what do you think, Eric? 
Yeah, I, I, I'm a little mixed on this because I like the general styling. I agree with you that there's parts that could be better. And I'm wondering if they're doing this sort of in Ducati's way of, uh, yeah, we'll sell you the bike on the cheap and then we're going to have right. 40 pages worth of stuff for you to personalize it and then, you know, end up spending three grand more. And by the way, we'll finance you well for all that yeah. while we're here. Exactly. Um, my, my biggest issue is the lack of power. Off the top of my head, it's like a 48 or a 52 horsepower bike. And, yeah, okay, maybe it's got that amount of torque, but really a 950 CCV twin. Right. I mean, oh, Harley, Dav- Harley Davidson thinks that's a little underpowered. I know. And it's heavy, too. It's yes. surprisingly heavy. It's, it's like, like 540 like, pounds. Yeah. It's 100 pounds more than the Kawasaki W650. Talking to my wife, and she said, oh, is that about the size of the W650? And at first I said, yeah. And I thought, no, it's longer and Wow, it's a whole lot heavier. It's strikingly heavy. And think about it. The FZ07 has more power. It's probably lighter. And it's a whole bunch less money. It's. I think the FZ07 is like under 450. I think it's like 435, 440. Right. And it, Off the top it's, of my head. Yeah. And it's what? 79? Uh, 79.95, 79.99. Yeah. And this one I think was like 86 or yep. 88 or something like that. The FC seems like a way better value, and if you have to have that look, the heritage look, then I guess you're going to pay a premium for it, but you're going to get a whole lot more motorcycle, I think, for the FC07. Get some... Oh, who makes those? Get some some spoke rims and some knobby tires, throw it in FC07, and you're you're there. Right, exactly. I think that's what I would do. For less money. Yeah. So speaking of, speaking of which, by the way, going back uh, earlier to the uh, XS400, yeah, like for an old bike, it's surprising. I mean, I hate to say this because I sound super cheap, but like it's hard to find tires for under 200 bucks for a pair for that for a bike. That's, you know, it's like well, the thing, okay. when, when the bike's worth a thousand dollars and you're spending 20 percent of the value on on tires. That said, I'm buying decent tires for it. I'm not going to get the Chen Shings from J.C. Whitney, uh, a vendor that I've dealt with a number of times, MotorcycleTiresManiac.com. It's actually a uh, the online kind of storefront for a tire store in, I think it's like Grand Island, Nebraska or something. It's it's like an automotive tire store, but they ha- they sell their motorcycle tires online, really good prices, really good selection. You know, you can you can get yeah. hide nows from them and and stuff like that that you can't find everywhere. Every tire that they have, they carry it in stock in every available size. Wow. And they have a really nice website that allows you to search by size and pull up everything that will fit it. So uh, I I will highly recommend them. I've done business. I think I've bought three sets of tires from them, and uh, I've been very pleased with them. I, I was looking at some Avon AV26 or something 26, I think, is the is the model. And um, they come in the right size. They seem to have really good reviews from everyone. Like, well, I don't handle I'm like, I don't need something that handles well. I need something that does well because it's not a sport bike. It's a pretty standard right. runaround so bike. And it's like what 100... size tires does that have on it? Oh, off is... the top of my head, it's like a... Is it 18, eight, 18 and 19? Yeah, 18s, yeah. 18s, and it's like a three and a three and a half, I think. So here's the thing. I just bought new tires for this T350 Rebel of mine, and I I wanted a classic tread design to match the style of the bike, but I wanted a new compound and a mm-hmm. modern performance tire. So I bought the Continental 
They're called Conta Ultra TKV12s, and they're a little bit expensive. The the street price on them is about, and you'll probably run the same size tire. I've got 18s and 19s on it, and I think um, street price is right around 140 for the rear and 110 for the front tire. Um, they're they're really amazing tires. Now, granted, I've only ridden the motorcycle for about 20 miles with them, um, but they're really, really sticky compound. Not overly so. I don't are think you, they're going to wear out are you super. Sure you, I want to verify. TKV 11 and 12? It's got to be something else because TKV's 11s and 12s have been around since uh, I had them on my uh, Boltaco in 1985. Yeah, no, that's the tire. Okay. They, I thought I thought they had gone to like really lousy compound on them because they're they're an economy. Oh slash. no, I I wonder if maybe they've changed the compound because even uh, I bought them out of my Tuckeraki catalog, and so I got them for a dealer price. But um, they list them as a, a ultra high performance tire, and um, and I will tell you they are. They will pick up gravel off the road. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that really surprised me because I thought that was like their sport classic line. Hmm. Oh well. Uh, uh, I, I have to say I raced them in 1985 in Formula Four on a 180 pound motorcycle, but uh, still, yeah. I I I liked them back then. They so. still have the same tread design as they always have, which is the reason why I picked them out is because I wanted that tread design, um, and I I liked what the specs were on them and from riding them around, especially if I go on a ride and I pull into my uh, gravel side driveway, uh, there will be rocks stuck all over them. They heat up enough to pick up rocks, uh, a lot of them, on, on a gravel road. So on, when you're driving on a pavement surface, it's not bad. They don't pick up rocks then. But just uh, when you get onto gravel, uh, they will. Um, amazing tire. I couldn't find the limit to the grip on them. I didn't push it too hard, but... Uh, for a classic tread design and a, a relatively good price, I would say uh, look at those. So, at any rate, Isle of Man. This year was a, uh, a good year for setting records, but uh, not a good year for setting records and deaths. Um, well, it's about. I think, was, I think the average is usually like two and a half or three, isn't it, per per year? I thought it was uh, one or two. It, okay. It's Yes. And I, they had on, four this year. Right. This is the most deaths in, it, in a racing year for Isle of Man. I think that's what I heard. Um, and it goes back to, I think, what we were talking about in a couple episodes ago, uh, the Isle of Man episode. It, it, is there a point where it just becomes too much? In other automotive racing like Formula One, if there's a death, I mean, it seems to shake the whole industry. They look at all of the safety barriers and the cars and everything about it to see how they could prevent that death. But I realize they can't do the same things with Isle of Man. I mean, hell, it's a 37-mile-long course. And also there's the the sake of tradition. But is there a point? Is there enough deaths occur in one year where they really have to start looking at making changes? I think the the one thing that I did notice uh, is that at least two, if not three, of the people were 
hate to use the word older, but they were. They were well into their mid to late 40s or early 50s, relatively inexperienced. So yeah. if anything, maybe they need to tighten the the standards, um, you know, of, of I don't want to say put an age restriction on, but you kind of got to prove that you can, you know, yeah, that you can ride it. I know that there were some older people. One was 27, if I recall, or in their yeah, 20s. Yeah. Um, young, it was a younger, younger kid. He was the first one this year, I think. Yeah. And so I think two died in sidecar racing. And I don't know if it was the passenger or the the driver. And then one in the senior and then one in super stock practice died. Um, but it just seems a little excessive. I mean, I don't know how you can really have a racing event and just expect that people are going to die. I, it seems a little absurd. We're getting back to kind of what I brought up during the Isle of Man episode, because it wasn't at the Isle of Man, but a Manx racer died in April, uh, Billy Redmayne, who was had done the real road racing circuit in, I think... Ireland and in Britain, but he he died at the Oliver's Mount Spring Cup in April, and he was a, a native of the Isle of Man, and he had died right before we recorded that episode. His girlfriend posted something on Facebook that said, Billy died doing what he loved, you know, and I'll take that as consolation, and a, a whole bunch of people who were fellow racers and stuff like that said, you know, well, it wasn't really that bad because he liked doing, I'm, I'm like, dead is dead. Yeah. And there's a, uh, oh, I can't think of her name. One of the famous female aerobatic pilots. Um, I'm drawing a blank on her name. It doesn't make any difference anyways. Somebody asked her, if, if you die up there, should that be a consolation to people? And she said, no, I will be very disappointed if I don't die of old age asleep in my bed. And right. I don't want to die up there. And if I do, it will be a tragic thing for everybody that's left and for me. And I don't want to give up a moment of my life. No, that doesn't make any difference to anybody, and it shouldn't, because tragedy is tragedy, and that's just a cop out. And I thought that was a really interesting thing coming right. from somebody who was in such a high risk career. There are dangers in motorcycle racing, and and a certain amount of danger is unavoidable. I think that's normal for racers, but when it it's almost like a gladiator match now, where people are going to die, and you're just waiting to find out who in mm. these in the in this race specifically I, I think the real issue would be is if someone crashed and that crash killed um a bystander you know someone watching the race that might be it but if it's just the racers dying the lack of sounding crass yes it's an issue but until somebody just as a spectator dies i don't think it's going to be I think a huge spectators thing have died at the isle of man in spectators accident. have died okay not recently um, though not recently right. though but i'm saying like in let's say the last 10 or 15 years right i think people have been injured maybe but i don't think anyone has died as a spectator yeah. so well i don't know the the four deaths this year it spoiled it a little bit for me where i am less interested now in the race have, knowing that there were four deaths this year than I have been in the past, it, it just seems a little excessive. It, and I don't know if this should be four deaths shouldn't make a big difference because there are deaths every year. And I get that. It just is becoming too regular, a little bit too extreme. You know, you were talking about 
doing something about the qualifications of the racers, I think we need to do something about the bikes, or they do. Yeah. Speeds keep going up and up and up. And, right. you know, for a long time, the 500cc was the top performance class. I could see them, you know, reducing displacement and not making it anything spec, but just simply say the classes, you know, are up to 400cc. Yeah. And, that, and that's it. You know, the crashes aren't happening when they're traveling 220 miles an hour. The crashes are happening you know, in corners or in areas of the course where they're tricky to navigate. And they'll, as a, a lesser powered motorcycle are, is still going to go at a rate where people can die right, in those areas. Accelerating so quickly out of those yeah. turns. That's some of it is when you've got the other, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the, the flip side of that is, is, is to Garrett's point is you have less maybe acceleration and less power, but to make up for it, you're going to find more corner speed. And one thing that we saw in MotoGP when they went from 990s to 800s is they that was to, you know, make it safer because you were taking away power. And what it really did is it actually ended up causing more accidents and more severe accidents because then the bikes were designed to corner so much quicker. They were almost like big 250 bikes at that time. Yeah. Um, that it um, that that was one of the re- one of many reasons why they decided to go back up to the thousand cc's. It was just well, the racing was brutal. It sucked, then <laughs> uh, yeah. that's being kind. Um, but yeah, the, it actually was the opposite. It actually ended up causing more accidents. So that's the not so obvious side of yes, it makes sense, and maybe you do limit it to say a six hundred or seven seven fifty as your as your max size and and get rid of the open bikes um i don't know what you'd do for the senior tt but uh but yeah that you know it's always an option senior tt was 500 cc's for many many years it seems difficult because there's really no good answer to this one yeah. of the things that attracts people to this race uh both the for danger spect- well exactly for both the spectators and the racers it's doing the 37 mile course as fast as you possibly can and the more power and the more speed the better and then you set this record lap time like michael dunlop did this year but also for the spectators seeing these motorcycles i mean it's just outright insane they're flying through the air in parts of the corners or course and it's tough because if you if you take away power and you take away speed i don't know if the racers are going to be as interested and the spectators probably aren't going to be as interested Uh, that's part of what makes the race what it is and so i'm not sure what you can do you can try to make the course safer but it's such a large course and i know that you don't have to make the entire course safer but certain parts of it it just costs so much money and is this simply take that same argument of wow people are dying unnecessarily is that just a difference in degree from let's get rid of motorcycles because people are dying and we don't need them. And, you know, if you were in a car, you'd probably survive a lot of the accidents that people have in bikes. And, you know, at what point can one person's evaluation of what's an acceptable risk yeah. be transferred to somebody else? Yeah. No, I, mean, I, I, com- a, I completely a lot of it, agree. Go ahead, Eric. Sorry. Um, I think a lot of what would happen and watching like um, – John McGinnis's uh, video diaries from on on uh, MCN and uh, the Forty Four Teeth guys and a couple other people who did videos while they were there. My takeaway from it is one easy way to increase safety is to trim back some trees. 
because the trees overhang the road and so much is in shadows and because no light gets in there there's a lot of mystery damp patches now i understand that's part of the skill of navigating the course but something simple like that but that's not so simple as you say because you want to trim trees back on a 38 mile you know not obviously not all 38 miles but there's still probably seven or eight miles of road where you'd have to trim back trees that so they don't overhang the road and you'd be trimming back trees that are hundreds of years old yeah that that is in a very picturesque touristy (laughs) place that yeah. market yeah. themselves as being this lush green beautiful yep. island so right it's a racetrack one week a year do you make mm-hmm. do you change the whole island because of this race that happens yeah. but i agree with pete it's i've always been a proponent especially on motorcycling with um racing if you want to participate in it and if you want to accept the risks and by all means you just have to know that there's a chance of dying and and i i don't i still think that but just how many deaths there are, and particularly this year with this race, um, it might be worth looking at the course and a couple of the like points that are most dangerous. Maybe just address those points. If it saves a life, it's worth it. And I just hate to see next year there be five deaths, and then a couple years later there's nine deaths. I just that would be terrible. I think, but it looks like that's the way that we're going with these speeds that are continually increasing. One of the interesting things in, in listening to John McGinnis was he was talking about his race on the on the electric bike, and he was bummed because he was – if he wasn't in – he was either first or second, but he was right there. And mm-hmm. then on the back half of the course coming home, there's one spot where there's a, a like a small jump, and he went over it, and when he landed, something goofy happened – uh, with one of the sensors, and it essentially killed two thirds of his power. So oh, he really? had to basically nurse the bike home and ended up fourth in the race. Yeah, yeah. I'm not qualified really because I raced one season and very quickly discovered that I'm not a racer. I liked honing my skill, but actually being in competition, feeling compelled to go as fast as I could, and with that, a greater and greater risk of going down, hurting me, hurting the bike. I really didn't find it acceptable to me personally and wasn't having any fun. So, uh, you know, getting out on a track day when I could kind of parade around at my own pace would have been one thing. But if you're going to be out on a racetrack, you kind of owe it to your fellow competitors to go as fast as you can. Uh, yeah, but there's enough different speed groups within a track day that you can find your your happy medium in there, oh, I think. I, track days, that's what I'm saying, is a track yeah. day, yeah, maybe I do that. Actually going out and racing, and racing. in a, in a sanctioned yes, race, yes, yes. you... You don't want to be tootling around out there. Yet. No, no. Yeah. And I didn't tootle and discovered I wasn't having fun because I was being very anxious. Yeah. A lot of racers, you're smart, Pete, and you realize that you're not a racer. You tried it once and and that's it. But there are racers that figure it out the hard way. But I'm not a racer either. And I I figured that out, luckily, before I got too hurt. At any rate, a couple things I wanted to bring up. I got an email from Eric T., who... I don't know the guy. He, I didn't know that he had my email. I've corresponded with him a couple times on another forum, on a British bike forum, and I got a little note from him about when we were talking about the Norton ads 
And, yeah. and I said that Norton had two different versions of the ads. One was more risque for Europe or yeah. UK. Evidently, I'm wrong because I got this note that says, and I'll read his email. I think you are confused about the British motorcycle ad that had two versions of the woman's shirt. There may have been something like you described, but I don't think that U.S. and U.K. ad agencies for the British manufacturers ever shared artwork. The ad you are thinking of was American, and it was BSA, not Norton. In 1968, BSA promoted a mail-in offer for four free posters based on photos from their ads. Different magazine ads had a slightly different address to send your request to. Ads in magazines that were more risque, such as men's magazines, got you a poster with the woman's shirt open. If you sent in for the posters from something like Newsweek or Life magazine, the address got you a version where she had something on underneath it. I thought that was a really interesting little trivia story there about how they were doing things. Because we were talking about how uptight some people were at the Mm -hmm. time. And it wasn't in their ad. It was the posters they were sending out were based on what magazine you were replying (laughs) from. And they just had a slightly different line in the address. That's pretty sneaky. That's funny, though. I like that. And I emailed back and I said, thanks for it. And he said, oh, by the way. The posters, any of them, are worth hundreds of dollars now. So oh, if you oh, ever really? run across these, there were a series of four posters. He said they're all, any version of any of them are hundreds of dollars. Yeah, you should ask him if he wants to be a guest on the show. He sounds like he knows a fair bit about even, British I've, bikes. I've had some some conversations in some forum threads. I didn't even know he listened to the podcast. I, if it's a guy that I'm thinking of, I didn't even know he had my email. But I'm yeah. Anchonomi on that forum, so you know right. it's not that hard to figure out who I am. So. Yeah. Well, cool. I like that. <clears throat> oh, and his other comment to me was, I said gyroscopic, and it is gyroscopic. So I was corrected uh, <laughs> on my pronunciation. So <laughs> tomato, tomato. I hear it both ways. Yeah. I say gyroscopic. Aluminum, 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 right? Yeah, right. <laughs> Come to think of it, I don't even know if this guy is American or British. Because he's he's a pretty knowledgeable British bike guy, but I don't know where he's from. I'll have to go back yeah. and find out. Uh, uh, Velo set, Velocit, same thing. <laughs> the other thing that somebody brought to my mind uh, since our last podcast went live, when I was talking about so- looking for something that was not too expensive, a uh, fun little bike to have, somebody brought up the genuine G400 Classic which is not here yet, but Genuine is bringing in a Chinese-made version of the old Honda CB400SS, which yeah. was a 400-single street bike. And Shineray, the manufacturer, actually built it for Honda until Honda discontinued it, and then they just turned around and bought the design rights from Honda when Honda killed it and have continued really? to manufacture it. So, you know, the quality was good enough to be sold as a Honda in, it was never sold in the United States, but it was sold, uh, I don't know. Throughout Europe. Asia, I would assume. Indonesia. Uh, I, know, I know the last place that it was being manufactured for was South Africa. And that was only a couple years ago. Mm. Wow. So, I was going to ask, do you know what the price is looking like? I don't think they've announced a price on it. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a, super cool. I, I'll it's bet. It's, bike. No, it's a great looking bike, really. Just off of the top of my head, I'm sure it'll be probably around four thousand. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's around four. Yeah, 
Yeah. If that came in at thirty nine ninety nine, that would be a killer deal because it's fuel injected. It's uh, genuine scooter company has actually done a really good job sourcing stuff from Asia and India and getting the quality control right. You know, so yeah. so is the Kickstarter legit? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is it kick and electric? I'm I guessing believe, it. yeah. I, I would, it would you, have you can, to be. You can really, see, yeah. I think that's an electric starter in the front of the motor. But yeah. uh, it's very similar to the GB500 that I really liked. It's kind yeah. of a smaller version of that. I don't think it has the radial valve heads like the GB500 had. I think it's the parallel valves. I mean, honestly, if I were looking for an inexpensive motorcycle, I would buy this way before the SCR950. For my money, Dif- different. Uh, I, I get it. I know different market, but, but yeah. But still, for the price of this, I don't I, know. I'd buy this before I'd spend six grand on a on a uh, SR four hundred Yamaha. Yeah. Would you buy this over a KTM Duke three ninety for five? You know, I read. I read the for five. I don't know. It, the KTM is definitely a lot more power. It's going to have yeah. uh, ABS, which this isn't going to have. It definitely has some selling points. The The Duke 390, when I rode it, it's a really short wheelbase. It yeah. feels like a toy. I yeah. liked it, but between the hard seat and the compact ergonomic triangle on it, I'm not sure I would buy it because I don't think I really fit on it. Yeah. Um what about last one? A CBR 300R. Would you buy this I would over? Probably, the only thing I think I would consider is a CB 300F. Yeah, which is the the naked same one. thing. But unfortunately, yeah. it only comes without ABS. Uh, yeah, because so. I think that those are right around five, maybe something like that. Yeah, so it, it'll, we'll have to wait and see what the price is. But I I did yeah. want to mention that because I think it's a very cool motorcycle. Unfortunately, they've been teasing this for like 18 months, and they kept yeah. saying, yeah, it's going to be 2016. Yeah, it's going to be later in the year. Yeah, it's going to be in the fall. Evidently, emissions. they got a couple in all, here. Yeah, well, I'm sure it's all about emissions. Actually, no. Yeah. They got the a couple of them, and they didn't think the, the quality control was there, so they ah. went back and changed a couple of components they thought were a little too flimsy, and they had to re-engineer that and then have the factory gear up with their changes. But I think that really bodes well that they're not just bringing in a Chinese bike, that right. Genuine is really <laughs> doing their due diligence to make sure it's something worth putting their name on. Yeah, that sounds promising. And and remind me, but Genuine makes the Stella scooters, right? Is that what Yeah, I'm... they make the Stella, yeah. the Buddy. Uh, yep. They made the, the Rattler 110 for years, which was like the last two-stroke scooter you could buy. It was 110 cc, yeah. and it was the only thing over 50 cc's that you could buy that was a two-stroke for years. How they brought it in, I have no idea, but uh, it's that that eventually had to go away too. Mm. I oh, uh, cool. speaking speaking of two-strokes on the Aprilia forum today, I saw some guy. It was a Aprilia RS250 for sale. Buy it. Unfortunately, it was in the U- unfortunately it's in the UK, so it's in British pounds. Oh God! Uh, it had a 421 cc. Athena, Athena, Athena motor in it, something yeah. like that. Wait, yeah. wait, wait, four, t- four twenty-one. Uh, did they so do was, those with Aprilia? Well, it was the, it's the, it's the uh, RZ it's slash, okay. it's the Banshee slash RZ three fifty motor. Yeah, so that's a sixty-eight millimeter bore with a four mil stroke. 
Okay. And, uh, um, and they put it in, in an RS-250 frame. Interesting. Yes. It's a, it's yeah. a, actually, it's a pretty common swap for that bike, to be honest with you, because mm-hmm. the Suzuki motor that came in it was okay, but not that great. Yeah. It was about a 60 horsepower, 65 horsepower bike. And if you leaned on it mu- too much, it, they, they, they were known to seize fairly easily. Um, yeah. So yeah, you can easily build like an 85 to 90 horsepower motor in that uh, with that 421, and some people even done 535 uh, cc engines. Anyways, so yeah. long, st- long story longer, it was for sale. It was done. It was perfect. It ran great. I think it dynoed at something close to like 100 horsepower and 50 foot pounds of torque. Yeah. Um, and it was 10.5 pounds. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I did the math on. I'm like, oh shit, that's 15 grand to start, well, plus another thousand bucks to get it in the country. Eh. We in the our race shop, we build a lot of the 380, 421, and even bigger. We go all the way up to well, what you call a 535. We it's actually a 521 in the stock bore configuration. Um, we build quite a few of those, and the 421 motors, something like that. It's 15 grand, but the motor to the cost to build it is going to be 5,000 or so. Well, I know it. It's like, I'm not saying the price was wrong. Cause I said, I just did the math in my head really quick. I'm like, yeah. well, that's really fair. I don't know that I could build it for that. So yeah. the pricing was fair. I, I'm not yeah. saying, but it's like, yeah, well, <laughs> there's a, an engine that we built uh, last year. It's a, a 521. So it's a 10 millimeter stroke crankshaft. And so the stock RZ bore is 64 millimeters. Uh, you can go to a big bore, which is 68 millimeters. You have to re-sleeve it. And you can go, if you're really, really crazy, you can do aftermarket cylinders like the uh, Athena or there is others um, where you can go to a 72 millimeter bore. But we took uh, stock cylinders and we moved the head studs out so we could put a bigger sleeve into the cylinders. So we made a 72 millimeter bore with stock cylinders and that worked out to 521 cc's a torque monster it's unbelievable how much torque it makes wow. on methanol it made 121 horsepower wow so, yeah wow. and met- methanol will give you a lot more horsepower but it also yes. increases your <laughs> torque it increases your torque tremendously also um you have to think with a methanol motor on the low end, you'll run about 14 and a half to one compression, but you can go all the way up to about 17 to one compression. <laughs> you make, you yep. make tremendous torque with it. Yep. So. No, back in the, back in the day of, in the original days of formula USA, um, the Valvoline Suzuki team created what was known as the methanol monster. And, and yeah, they yeah. did, you know, this is the days of, of, uh, carburation, but, um, yeah, they, I remember that bike, well, because they had to build like a 30 liter tank so they could actually make it to race distance. Yeah. I think the eBay link there, it has the uh, a picture of the dyno graph in it. But this bike was, yeah, for the price, it was well done. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, it's got a, a lockup clutch in it. That clutch that's in this, unless there's another company that makes it, as far as I know, the only one that does is a company that's actually really close to my house. They do this really neat clutch system where it takes uh, the regular pressure plate on an RZ and they have these little weights that are centrifugally activated. And so the more RPM that's introduced into the motor, the weights 
press mm-hmm. against the pressure plate and it sends more pressure. So back in the day, before any of that was around, people used to do what's called an eight plate clutch where they take the clutch hub and the pressure plate. You could machine a certain amount out of it and you could actually fit an extra uh, clutch friction into it. Stock, they only had seven and you could fit an eighth clutch plate into it, but it required machining. But the pressure plate ended up becoming kind of thin. So you it, it created some issues with the way the clutch worked. But then this company started doing this really neat centrifugal mechanism so you could put extra pressure onto the clutch without having to increase your spring rate or without having to machine the space for the added eighth plate. Really, really wow. cool. And I'm just noticing that this Aprilia has that, which is an amazing modification for a street bike. On, on a racetrack, it doesn't really uh, make much of a difference to have that eighth plate. This one with this clutch in it, it makes it so you can have a really, really light clutch pull, but still have a tremendous amount of gripping force. There, a little factoid for you. <laughs> it's boring, but it's my life. <laughs> All know, right. Somebody paid us a really nice compliment in the reviews on iTunes. Somebody said, these guys talk about motorcycles, not about being a biker. It's, yeah. you know, it's not about the lifestyle. It's about the machines. And I took that as a very, very flattering evaluation. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. <laughs> we were talking about uh, ugly bikes earlier when we were talking about the FC. I'm sorry, my perception of ugly bikes earlier. Uh, how ugly a bike would have to be before it would keep you from buying it. I always thought that the BMW... F650 CS was one of the most hideous motorcycles ever made. And I was like, I would never ride one of those, never own one, because they're just so ugly. Just this morning, on the Kansas City Craigslist, a 2003 F650 CS with 5,100 miles on it for four grand. I'm like, wow, ABS, belt drive, 650 single. That's just what I'm looking for. And I was like, no, but, but but could I could I buy it? It's got those goofy passenger handholds are on the back of the tank, so the passenger reaches around the driver to hold onto these big translucent plastic things. It's just it the front of it looks like an old iMac. Um, it, well, it's just I say it looks it looks like a it looks like a really someone was inspired by an insect, except they were dropping acid yeah. at the time. It, yeah, it I really, was going to say it looks like a Mars rover in two wheeled form. the The front of it looks like the face of the alien, the the xenomorph from Alien. You know, I expect to see mouth after mouth start you know extending out from the between the headlights, and I'm really struggling with, wow. Really good shape, four grand, just the kind of bike I'm looking for. Yeah. And I went back to what we were saying, don't buy a bike that's 95% of what you want, because every time Mm -hmm. you look at it, you're going to go, that wasn't the bike I really wanted. And I'm like, no, I I can't do it. It's too ugly to buy at any price. For the right price, I would say uh, the ugliest motorcycle in the world, there's a price in which I would buy it. And it's probably not even like close to zero. Like. Any motorcycle that I could have fun on, regardless of the appearance, I would buy for somewhere near a reasonable price. Even this, maybe your uh, feelings are a little bit stronger than mine. I don't mind it that much. In fact, I mean, I wouldn't buy it because it's not my style, but I'm not so unattracted to it that I wouldn't buy it for, like, if I found it and it was, like, a good deal locally. You, uh, 
You definitely know you have a lot of personal self-confidence riding this bike. Yeah. I like the front wheel. You're, looks, you're not. You're not. You don't care about the opinion of others when you ride this bike. That's true, and and that's kind of how I feel on a motorcycle. I really don't care about anybody else. I, I just like riding two else. wheels. It's just I don't want those goofy things sticking out at me while I'm riding it. You know, I, I would feel a little bit uncomfortable uh, uncomfortable about the passenger reaching around me and like holding on to the tank. My, uh, my kind of. <laughs> my biggest issue with the style, I mean, the, the, the headlights and the and the little bikini fairing or whatever, that's fixable, I think. But it looks like it's got the like 37 millimeter forks that are raked out like it's right. a 70s cruiser. Um, like, I mean, it's not that bad, obviously, but it's just yeah. these little spindly forks on it that are kicked out. And it's just I think that's really what kills the styling for me. Yeah. I can almost live with everything else. So it does look like you would go off a curb and lose all your teeth on the ground when those forks collapse out from underneath you. But <laughs> it, it looks kind of like a Buell Blast. And I think Buell Blasts are probably one of the most ugly motorcycles ever made. So, and I don't mind the silver with the windshield on the front of it, I think looks okay. That blue color with the orange seat looks god awful. So, I'll give you that. In 1972, when the GT750 first came out and it had the Buck Rogers side covers and all kind of swoopy, odd three into four exhausts with cones on the back of them and stuff, it was just really bizarre. I think it was a Popular Mechanics article when one guy said, you know, I wouldn't have to look at it while I was riding it. And so I've always remembered that. And I I, kind of think, yeah, there's a lot of bikes that I think, you know, the headlights or something are ugly, but you don't have to see that. I think the ugly part of the F650 CS would be staring me in the face the whole time. and 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 I couldn't get away from it, even if I was on it. So that's part of my no, I couldn't do that. That reminds me of something my dad always used to say when somebody asked him, like, how something looked and he'd be like, well, I can't see it from my house. So and that was his way of saying that it was ugly, but I can't see it from my house. Uh, Well, one last thing. We talked about the top 10 motorcycles uh, mm -hmm. that we thought were good deals. Uh, Popular Mechanics, who that I subscribe to and I like, (laughs) they issued their list of the top 10 values and some of them are the ones we pegged and some of them are the ones that we said were extremely bad values (laughs) so if you go out and and i'll put a link to that and people can look through that and decide whether we're right or they're right yeah i like it if you're listening to this and you don't check out our weekly post on hooniverse we show you a picture of all the bikes that we talk about uh, manufacturers promotional or ad press kit photo whenever possible and they're all in that post on Hooniverse. you have to go there and look at the pictures because that will make all the people who uh, allow us to do this under the Hooniverse banner very happy so go and you're ch- doing yourself a huge injustice by not seeing the sweet riding suit that Pete used to wear in the <laughs> 80s standing next, standing next to his MB5 yeah, he's even got the like the sideways hip thrust, like butt out, check my ass. So you're doing yourself an injustice by not looking at that. So go to Hooniverse dot com, look at our episodes, uh, look at the picture of Pete, and after you finish laughing, uh, tell Pete how cool he looks. Hey, I, I think I'm going to auction those off someday. I'm going to do something for charity, and <laughs> I'll be the high bidder. And, I promise. Uh, way back when, when I first put that on Hooniverse, I think it was. Blake Z. Wrong, who referred to them as 
uh, stupid sexy leathers from the <laughs> the Simpsons episode where they were talking about stupid sexy Flanders. So someday I'm going to auction off my stupid sexy leathers. Yeah. So go to Hooniverse.com and, and check out the pictures. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, we are at the False Neutral and Facebook.com forward slash the False Neutral. Check in on us, leave us comments, and tell us what you want to hear, and we'll work it into the show. And if you have any topic that you would like us to address, please don't send me an email. Reply on Hooniverse. Do it. As always, gentlemen, it's been a pleasure. Been fun. Bye-bye.